Good afternoon. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. It's the second day in a row. We have a big comeback victory to talk about. There was a loss sandwich in between those. Doubleheader yesterday. Spent 12 hours down at the Rogers Center. Sitting between Ben Wagner and Caleb Joseph. Tell you, you absorb a lot. Spending 12 hours with Caleb Joseph. That guy just calls every pitch ahead of time before it comes. It's remarkable. Not sure anyone could call the way the day unfolded. Uh, It looked pretty bleak at the beginning. Alec Manoa scratched from game one. Stomach bug that almost sent him to the ER the night prior. So game one ends up a Merriweather start followed by Mitch White. Mitch White does a decent job saving the bullpen, gives up three over six. Unfortunately, the bats can't come around. The Jays lose 4-2. They manage to only use three pitchers on a pseudo bullpen day, so that's a positive at least. Um, Bobashek stays hot with two hits, but on the 11th pitch of an at-bat in the bottom of the ninth with two runners on, he grounds out. Uh, pretty cool at-bat. A lot of fun to see Bo locked in process-wise as he is right now. Feels like the only time he hasn't come up in a huge spot recently. We get the word shortly after that game that Alec Manoa is good to go. He's going to fight through it. As Alec Manoa explained after the game, you know, there wasn't really much question for Alec Manoa. Here is Manoa uh, explaining what that day was like for him and why he took the mound despite really not feeling well. Just kind of going through it last night. Um, I've never been to an ER in Toronto, never been to anything, so it was kind of just lost in what to do. Um, texted Jose, didn't really want to wake him up. I felt bad about it. Um, but I was basically tossing turns about 6.30 this morning. Uh, was able to kind of shut my eyes a little bit. Alarm went off at 8 a.m. Jose had texted me back and... Um, Basically just had to get a lot of fluids back in me and they did a great job of uh, taking care of me and um, you know I still wanted to go in the first game I was like I can do it and they were like no, don't worry uh, you know we'll get guys ready to go just can you be ready for the second game um, so just basically was completely out of routine um, slept till about 2:30 so I didn't get much sleep last night uh, got to the ballpark another IV. Uh, try to get some food in my stomach, see if it'll stay down, and um, just got to go out there and compete, you know. Um, you can keep it close enough. I know these guys are going to come through, and uh, they did tonight some big hits, some big-time defensive plays, and, yeah, that was that was basically it. That was Alec Manoa, and then he goes out there and he gives you six and two-thirds. Early on, the velocity's down a little bit on the fastball and the slider. It, it came around later in the start, not all the way to where we normally see it, but um, it inched its way back up there and it didn't really matter anyway. Uh, even when the velocity wasn't fully there early, Manoa was gutting it out. He was dealing. So he gives you six and two thirds. Anthony Bass comes in, gets one out for him. You go to the seventh and it's, uh, it's been frustrating to this point. Not a lot of bats in the first game, a lot, a lot, a lot of ground balls, in the second game, um, you tie it up on this Alejandro Kirk dribbler that kind of bounces off the front of the plate. If any of you play slow pitch, it's like when you 
swing poorly at a ball, but it hits the front of the board and it rolls just far enough that the catcher and the pitcher who are generally on a slow pitch team, two of your less athletic players uh, and you book it down to first base. Kirk was out at first, but it was enough to score a run. Then you get the seventh inning against Colin Poche and John Schneider gets in his bag a little bit. He's pinch hitting Espinal for Biggio walk advanced twice on wild pitches. Uh, Chapman strikes out, but then Jansen comes in for Tapia and walks pinch runner comes in pinch hitter. Whit Merrifield comes in for Jackie Bradley jr. And, and let it be said, uh, absolutely nobody on this show has ever questioned the Whit, Whit Merrifield thing. Uh, he comes through with a big two run double and you see Bradley Zimmer absolutely book it around the bases. Uh, Springer comes through with a two run home run after that. And then there's a little insurance in the eighth. So the Jays end up winning that one seven to two. They split the double header. They've now taken two of three against the Rays in this series with another game tonight at seven and another tomorrow at three. The season deficit is now cut to seven and seven to six uh, in favor of Tampa Bay on the season with six games left to go. So if the Jays are worried about tiebreakers, they got to take four of these last six against Tampa Bay. More notably than that, because they've taken two of three, because Seattle lost last night, the Jays are now holding the top wildcard spot, which they haven't done for a while because they don't have tiebreaker against either of those teams. They're five and a half up on Baltimore in terms of playoff spot cushion and then seven and nine on the AL central teams, uh, still six games back of the Yankees. So we remain with 20 games here focused in on the way those three wildcard teams shake out. We're going to talk to Michael Bauman of Fangraphs a little later. Um, he just recently wrote a, a great piece on Canadian Cal Quantrill, who uh, is a big piece of that Guardians team that's leading the AL Central right now. We'll see what he thinks about that potential matchup and the American League East, uh, the American League wildcard in general. Uh, we're also going to talk to Trisha Whitaker, get the Rays side of the series so far, take a look at what's ahead, including tonight, Drew Rasmussen versus Ross Stripling in a, a battle of two of the biggest breakout starting pitchers of the season. And tomorrow, an ace day with Kevin Gosman against, we think a returning Shane McClanahan. So uh, we'll see what Trisha has to say about the Rays side of thing. Uh, before we do that, though, tagging our pal Shai Davidi, the hot dog analytics king of Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca. Um, by the way, while we connect with uh, uh, Shai, just a note, uh, Mitch White was returned to AAA after the game last night. He was uh, the 29th man on the roster for that one. The Rays sent Yoni Chirinos back to Durham, uh, moved Brandon Lau to the IL and called Renee Pinto up uh, to replace Lau there. So um, not quite the whirlwind of Rays moves that we've seen the last couple of days, but a few there. The big move yesterday, uh, the move most people were probably making between and after the games, after eating all of those hot dogs. Uh, Shai Davidi of Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca, the hot dog analytics king. How are you, man? I'm all right. What's going on? Uh, not much. So before we get into the the good stuff from yesterday's game, the bad stuff, you and I talked before the game. I, I told you I had set the over-under for the two games combined at 72,500 hot dogs. And most people in the text line and on Twitter thought that was way too low. What happened yesterday? The, the people did not down the loony dogs. Yeah, it was uh, a, a bit of a lower showing than expected. 
the uh, recent deadlines. Uh, I do think part of that was uh, simply the attendance being down a little bit, which led to a reduction in volume. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there was some hopes or that the Blue Jays might, uh, might push that total over to 100K yesterday and came in at uh, just a bit over half that. So uh, a bit of a, a jarring number for the, uh, for the hot dog people. Yeah, that's uh, it's a little disappointing um, for sure for people who are tracking that. I, I feel better about setting the over under. I, I was worried all day that it was too low um, because that's what that's what the response had been. But we come in nice and under that. Uh, we'll see. There's only one more left on the 27th against the Yankees. Unless shy, and I don't know if you have an answer for this. So sorry to put you on the spot. Are they carrying Looney Dogs over into the playoffs? I would assume not. Uh, you know the. It could be a while until you get into a, a potential Tuesday. You may not even have a Tuesday. Uh, but, you know, this is a, a regular season promotion, and I'm not sure you want loony hot dogs at, uh, at a playoff game. And how can that be profitable for Schneiders, right, at that, at that point? Um, so you mentioned the, the lower attendance for the games yesterday. I think that's completely understandable given that, um, you know, we're in the first little bit here of day games with kids back in school and uh, weeknights with kids back in school. Big picture, this Jays season is tracking to be their best attendance since 2017, obviously due to the, you know, the downturn of the team and then the pandemic stuff. And um, if you take away the 2015-2017 stretch, which obviously you know, that's where the the story started that uh, this team will come out if you, or the fan base will come out if you win. Um, you'd have to go back to 1995 for the last time uh, the Jays were on pace to get this level of attendance. So um, said differently, it's the fourth highest attendance of the last 18 years or so right now. Um, do you think this front office is, is content with that, happy with, with where they're at, considering that this is an 80 and 62 team that's firmly in a playoff spot? Well, I think the one trend that has left some people scratching their heads is that they have tracked a little bit lower than they projected on weeknight games, but higher than they expected on weekend games. And I wonder if there's, uh, at least some of the speculation and some of the discussion is that, is it partly tied to not everyone being fully back to work or some disruption to ongoing disruption to downtown work life that is impacting some of the the weeknight attendance. But the, the demand has been stronger than anticipated or projected on the weekends. And then how do you counter that? Is that simply a matter of just the, the pandemic playing out and the entire societal structure returning more towards uh, the old uh, the old normal? Or is this perhaps a bit indicative of a new trend where you know more offices are hybrid and maybe the downtown population uh, with the downtown work professional population isn't as robust as it was beforehand so i think that's maybe the the bigger picture question to answer i think we all look at the numbers and think you know team this good with uh, the playoff anticipation and all that stuff you know why isn't it right back to 15 16 17 levels but we do have to keep in mind this is you know the first season of all 81 games being in Toronto uh, under relatively normal circumstances, and maybe there's a bit of a lag with people feeling uh, fully comfortable getting uh, going back to games with big crowds. You know, I, I I know 
personally a few people who are still reluctant. Actually, a friend yesterday uh, was one of his first games back, and you know he chose to wear a mask as uh, at a personal preference. So uh, I do think there's still a lot of normalcy to gathering in big crowds, and still has to return too. Also still one series at home left against the Yankees and one against the Red Sox. We know those tend to be pretty big ones. I do wonder if um, the playoff, like obviously the Jays are in a playoff spot, but at this point, 20 games left, the Yankees are six games ahead. They've got a five and a half game cushion on a playoff spot. It's almost like, you know, when the Raptors are fighting for the fifth to eighth seed in the Eastern Conference, it's like, it's still interesting. It still matters, but it's not quite as, uh, you know, must-see as it was down the stretch last year. Now, if you did turn out to the game yesterday, you got a terrific doubleheader, close loss in the first one, and an absolute tough guy performance from Alec Manoa pitching through illness. It sounded like an awful night and day for Manoa. He gives him six and two-thirds. What is the feeling like around the team when a guy like that, who is one of your most important, if not your most important player right now, toughs it out like that and gives you a performance like that in a big spot? Well, obviously, there that really charges you up. But there's also an element of, you know, this is, this is what it takes at this time of year. And that lots of guys on that team are pushing through various different elements, uh, you know, be it just the, the fatigue of you know, being 140-something games in, uh, playing every day, being beaten up. You, know, you look at George Springer, and he's essentially playing with, you know, one-and-a-half arms as he's, as he's dealing with that elbow issue. Uh, I think that's, in a sense, viewed as the, the price of doing business in September baseball. But, you know, under those circumstances, knowing what the guy had gone through and – that you know what what it would have meant for the team had he not been able to pitch you know there, there's definite appreciation for that there's a little bit of yeah let's go he's got us right and that played uh, that played big for the blue jays because you know mitch white as much as that first game was frustrating for a number of reasons mitch white getting through six innings there and keeping that game uh relatively in check you know that was really important and created some flexibility but now that you know Manoa was able to go deep as well, you know, the Blue Jays bullpen is in a in a pretty good spot going into these final two days with the Rays, where the Rays have a little bit less margin for error after you know bullpen game and uh, you know being beat up in the previous series against the Yankees. Uh, so it, you know to to kind of paraphrase what you said there about the the impact of Manoa, I guess um, a bit of a tone setter, right? About what these next couple weeks are going to entail and what they're going to ask of guys, and whether it's you know not feeling well or, or bumps and bruises or just that level of attention and focus that we didn't see in that first game. You know, Mitch White gives up three over six; they were all earned. Uh, it felt like at least one of those wasn't. Uh, justly earned with the the Teoscar blunder. Um, so is that is that a part of this too, that it's, you know, the timing of this and what Manoa said after the game, it's, uh, you know, hey, everyone on notice, we are fully locked in 100% the rest of the way. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, I think the the mental errors are, are a separate thing. And that's, you know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. dismissing the bag that really – Helped uh, helped keep that inning going uh, in that that three run third in the first game, uh, and then you know Teoscar Hernandez just taking it for granted that Arozarena just wasn't going to run, and then you know full credit to him, you know he made a 
hell of a play. He dared Hernandez to throw him out, and Hernandez didn't do it. Uh, yeah, I think those are two separate issues where there's a little bit of maybe attention to detail that needs to be locked in there uh, from a defensive standpoint versus someone stepping up and just grabbing a game by the throat and keeping it there for his teammates to, to, do, to do their part. So uh, I, I kind of see, I, I, I kind of know where you're getting at there, but I also think that you know, the, the ascension to detail has come up a few times in different ways for the Blue Jays this season. And it's something that they really need to lock in now because every game, as we obviously know, means so much at this point. In terms of attention to detail, uh, it was a pretty big attention to detail game in both games, but especially game two for uh, interim manager John Schneider. We saw him do a whole bunch of pinch hit, pinch run, defensive substitutions, Anthony Bass for just three pitches and then out, um, and then even Zach Pop coming in for Jordan Romano to potentially save Romano for a day like today after he only needed a couple pitches. Um, What have you made of Schneider's performance overall in general when it comes to those micro decisions, but especially Especially of late as they've been in more tight games? Well, I think it starts with him just having more tools in the toolkit, right? Like at the beginning of the season, you know, Charlie Montano, Montano had Vinny Capra and Ghost Kick and <laughs> Bradley Zimmer on his bench. You're not making moves under those circumstances, but now you're in a situation where you can comfortably flip Santiago Espinal with Kevin Vigio or vice versa. You can flip uh, Tapia with Whit Merrifield. You can, you can, because you're carrying uh, Gabriel Moreno right now, you, uh, you can pinch hit Danny Jensen and not worry about losing your backup catchers. So there's just more flexibility. But the way that John Schneider set everything up last night, yeah, that was really outweighing the Rays there because he set up that part of the game where the Rays would almost have to go to a le- uh, part of the lineup, excuse me, where the Rays would have to go to a left-hander. And then it was just picking the spot, whether it was the fifth inning when uh, Clevenger came in or whether it was the seventh inning when Punch is out there, it, you know, there was going to be an opportunity for the Blue Jays to take their shot. And, uh, you know, obviously it, it all worked out uh, in, a, in a very significant way for the Blue Jays yesterday. Um, earlier in those games and again on uh, Monday, you know, a couple big spots for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And he he's back into one of his, well, hey, quietly, he's on a seven-game hitting streak here, um, but not doing as much damage as we're maybe used to from Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Um, maybe you see the, the last couple games, including a, a double the other way on Monday and another double yesterday down the line um, as signs he's coming out of it. But, you know, we zoom out to a month, the six-week window, this has been one of the rougher stretches of Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s career. Do you sense that there's any sort of uh, angst with Guerrero or with the team that they haven't been able to figure this out yet? And again, uh, of course, the caveat that, you know, Vlad being in this lull means he's dropped all the way to being a league average hitter of late instead of, uh, you know, the the star. But um, it is kind of an extended stretch of time where Vlad hasn't quite looked like Vlad at the plate. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I wonder, and you know, will he, he probably won't ever give us the answer to this, but I wonder if there's, if physically he's, he's all there and, you know, at different points in the season, he's battled foot, hand, wrist issues. And 
I wonder if just there, there's maybe something there that he's not 100% himself and he's finding ways to compete with, with what he's got. But you're right from the standpoint of the, the performance has, hasn't been there for an extended stretch. And I don't know. There, there are so many theories. I, I don't know what to, what to, what to jump on and, and sort of what to, what to really put stock in because ultimately you know, when you're in the batter's box, it's such a personal thing. He's so talented that he can do so many different things that even when he's grinding, he's finding ways to be productive. He's certainly not the dominant force we've seen. And, and I know that that part weighs on him, but I would also say that, you know, he's one of those guys who's, who's posting every day for his teammates. He's finding ways to contribute. If it, it, you know, we've seen a, a significant jump forward in his defense and that you know, he'd, he'd be working as hard as anybody in terms of trying to find ways to unlock it. So you know, I think the, the Bo Bichette stretch right now is a reminder that talented players do eventually figure it out. And when they do look out and you know, there, there have been signs, you can make the case that there have been signs of late, you can make the case that there haven't been signs. Uh, but you know, maybe maybe that sort of similar turnaround is just around the corner of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Oh, and imagine if they were both hot at the same time, and then you sprinkle in some uh, some uh, um, George Springer. Jeez, why couldn't I remember George Springer's yeah. name there for a second? Uh, last and one, Teoscar Hernandez. Teoscar Hernandez as well. Um, you know, especially Teoscar's hitting behind Alejandro Kirk, and now that we've seen those wheels, you know that <laughs> you you just need a base hit to score that guy. Um, Last one before I let you go, Shy. I know Mitch White was returned to AAA because he was just the 29th man. Uh, Yusei Kikuchi hasn't been used much of late. Do we know what next steps are for White and Kikuchi, particularly as it pertains to there is another TBD on the probable pitchers for Friday? Yeah, so Friday, uh, Mitch White's still going to be on option. Mm-hmm. Uh, still going to be in, in his option period. So he's not going to be eligible to return until September 22nd, I believe. And the Blue Jays, after this Friday, won't need a fifth starter again until September 24th in Tampa. So I'd imagine we see Mitch White back for that outing. Uh, but the, the thinking right now is that Friday could be another bullpen game uh, in the model of uh, Pittsburgh and Texas in, in recent days. Certainly something can, can change that depending on the next two days play out. But the, the way the Blue Jays have looked at those bullpen games is that they feel good enough about the getting consistent innings from the other four guys in the rotation that they don't mind doing a bullpen game in a certain spot because they don't have that obvious fifth guy. And right now, my sense is that they want to leave Kikuchi in the role that he's in right now as a bulk reliever as opposed to you know, making him a starter. Uh, could they, in theory, give him a start? Sure, but they, they wanted to try and adjust to this role for the time being and not yo-yo him too much. So uh, I'd expect Friday to be a bullpen game, and then you know Mitch White could certainly be back in the picture for that September 24th start in uh, in Tampa Bay. Yeah, that's uh, you know I know the Jays have tried to get those out of the way against lesser teams like Pittsburgh and Texas, or even you know choosing to have it against the Orioles versus the Rays there. But uh, you're running out of bad opponents to play. You come out, you come out of uh, five against Tampa, three against Baltimore, and then you got Philly, Tampa, and the Yankees. So uh, no more soft spots on the schedule. Uh, Shai Davidi, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Be well. 
Shida Beattie of Sportsnet, of Sportsnet.ca. Really great piece on last night's game from him at .ca right now. A lot of good context around the Alec Manoa start and around, um, you know, how uplifting that start was for the other Blue Jays. Um, it's hard not to get fired up when a guy pitches through that and gives you a pretty good outing. And then the bats came around, not early enough to get him the win, but to get the team, the win, that's the, that's the big thing there. We're going to see Ross stripling against drew Rasmussen tonight as the Jays look to lock in a series victory and even the season series against Tampa Bay. Uh, let's take a break on the other side. We'll start taking a look at tonight's game. We'll talk to Trisha Whitaker of Bally sports, Florida, and uh, she's also on the Apple TV plus game on Friday. By the way, that's a re- early reminder. We'll tell you again on Friday, Apple TV plus game on Friday. Um, Trisha Whitaker and a look at Drew Rasmussen versus Ross Stripling next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with J.D., Blake, and Ailish. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy with you till five o'clock. We got fan drive time after that. And then Ben Wagner and Caleb Joseph on the call for you. First pitch 707 as the Jays take on the Rays. Coming off of a few big question mark days, who's going to start? Is Alec Manoa going to make it? Are both teams doing a bullpen day, opener, follower, etc.? We got regular starters. We got two guys head-to-head who were not regular starters until this year and are now two of the biggest breakout candidates. Not breakout candidates, but two of the biggest breakout successes as starting pitchers this year. Let's take a look at that pitching matchup. Drew Rasmussen is going to start for Tampa Bay. 27-year-old righty, a very typical Tampa Bay Rays story. Hey, remember that Trevor Richards trade? Rowdy Tellez for Trevor Richards. Rowdy, by the way, 30 home runs. Well, to get Trevor Richards to Milwaukee in the first place, it was a Trevor Richards and Willie Adamas for J.P. Fireisen and Drew Rasmussen trade. Drew Rasmussen had, to that point, been... A fringy prospect. He was at one point sixth in the Milwaukee system, but even in the minors, he was already flirting with transitioning to a bullpen role or a swingman role. He hadn't been a full-time starter since uh high A ball. And Milwaukee used him out of the bullpen. He was fine. He was just a guy. Had an ERA around four. Um, you know, the year prior they used him out of the penny at an ERA up around six. So naturally he gets to Tampa Bay and immediately becomes a very good reliever slash swingman. Big question is can it carry over? To use the uh the tech bro term, can it scale? Can he be a full time starter? Well, Drew Rasmussen's made twenty four starts this year. 122 and two thirds innings, two fifty seven ERA. He's very good. This is his first year, again, since 2019 in the minors, where he's a full-time starter, uh, striking out 23% of the batters he faces, 5.5% walk rate, which is very low, 
a good ground ball rate, decent home run per fly ball numbers. So everything is there. Doesn't have elite swing and miss stuff, but everything else is there. 90th percentile on chase rate. So this is, it's going to sound similar when I go over Ross Stripling. 90th percentile chase rate, which means he's in the top 10% in the league in getting guys to swing at stuff outside of the strike zone. And that generally is a good indicator of you're probably going to draw a lot of poor contact because where does poor contact come from? Well, quite often it comes from swings on pitches that are outside the zone, uncompetitive, uh, uncompetitive swings or, or swings at uncompetitive pitches. So Rasmussen has a 90th percentile chase rate, an 87th percentile walk rate. And then even with some high average exit velocity, has pretty good expected stats based on the stat cast metric. So the stat cast metric that looks at quality of contact, swings and misses, walk rate, uh, he's in the 69th percentile in expected ERA. The big thing with him, so those are the numbers, and, and the chase rate speaks for itself. You know, you get frustrated with the Jays chasing at times. Well, what makes a good pitcher then? Getting guys to chase. Um, the big thing that's going to stand out to you, though, in terms of what the pitches actually look like, and – I know our eyes can't really tell spin rate, but this guy spins the ball like crazy. His curveball has one of the biggest spin rates, so it's going to move a lot. His fastball has one of the biggest spin rates in baseball, which, again, when we talk about fastball spin rate, that's that fastball higher in the zone that appears like it's rising. Um, It's not actually, but it's defying gravity by not dropping a lot, um, and it can kind of ride up on you. You see a lot of guys swing under those pitches. And it's also a good way to set up your other pitches that start high in the zone uh, and then move a little lower. So he's going to throw that fastball, which by the way, is usually 95, 96. Throws about 37% of the time. He's going to work high in the zone, rarely locates it down. Now that's a big note for Vladimir Guerrero jr. Who yes, he's struggling right now, but if we get a little more granular with his season, he's struggling primarily on pitches down. Um, The book is out on him. He sees the sixth highest rate of pitches low in the zone. And that's because he's a top five hitter in baseball against pitches up in the zone. Now, surely you can remember examples where he hit a low ball really well, or he missed on a high pitch. Um, It's not a hundred percent and zero percent, but he's one of the very best hitters in baseball at high pitches. And so pitchers have really attacked him down, including the Tampa Bay Rays. It'll be interesting to see if Drew Rasmussen adjusts his fastball strategy and pitches to Vlad down in the zone instead, or maybe he doesn't go heavy with the fastball in general. He works with his sinker a little bit more. We'll see. But if it's up in the zone, that's a spot that Vlad can eat a little bit. Um, Opposing hitters have not hit that fastball well. 218 batting average, uh, 252 expected weighted on base average. So again, the stat cast metric that that measures a bunch of stuff. Very good results for Rasmussen with that, uh, even though there's not a ton, a ton of swing and miss against it. He'll also throw a cutter. That comes in about 91% or 91 miles an hour. He throws it about a third of the time. He works it away rather than in on the hands against righties, uh, and then it would be a little bit more in on the hands against lefties. Opponents hitting 241 against it. Again, a sub-300 expected weighted on base average, so overall pretty good results. Um, 31% swing and miss rate on that cutter. Usually a cutter is a, a weak contact pitch more than anything else, but he generates a lot of swing and miss uh, by the standards of a cutter, and, and here's why. 
He doesn't throw a sinker and curveball a ton, but if you look at where he releases his cutter, his sinker, and his curveball from, it is really hard to distinguish those pitches from each other um, until very, very late. The release points all line up really well. If you hear Caleb Joseph later or, or Joe Siddle or, or um, Pat Tabler, whoever it is, or Buck, whoever's on the call tonight, talking about tunneling, that's what they mean. These, those pitches look the same in Drew Rasmussen's arm as long as possible. Um, so those three are a little hard to distinguish, and he'll go heavy on the cutter but mix in the odd sinker and curveball to keep you guessing. The other pitch he throws a lot of is a sinker. It comes in at about 85 miles an hour, uh, or slider rather, sorry, not sinker, um, the sinker I mentioned earlier. So 85 mile, mile an hour slider, he throws that about a quarter of the time. That's one that I don't think this would be considered tipping because you won't know it ahead of time, but it is the one pitch that he throws from a more defined release point. The other four can kind of blend together, especially that cluster of three I mentioned, but the slider looks different the way he delivers it, the way it comes out of his hand. It hasn't really mattered. Uh, 209 opponent batting average against it, almost a 30% swing and miss rate, and the best batted ball numbers and power numbers against um, that pitch of any pitch in his repertoire. So again, high rising fastball up in the zone, cutter with a sinker and a curveball, a playoff it a little bit, and a slider that you can maybe tell is coming, but still a little tough to square up. Be really interested to see how the Jays do against that slider and against Rasmussen in general, because this is the fourth time they've seen him this year. Rasmussen started against the May 13th, July 2nd, August 2nd. 16 of the third innings over those three starts, a 165 ERA. Only allowed 19 base runners over those 16 plus innings. If you're looking for a reason for optimism, he only struck out six batters over those 16 of third innings. That's uh, not a lot of bat missing. And Rasmussen doesn't need to miss a ton of bats to be effective. But when you're talking about six strikeouts over 16 innings against a pretty good team, you might be playing with fire there. Um, overall, the Jays have seen him for 89 plate appearances. Not great results. Uh, Vlad is four for 13 against him with a pair of doubles. Teoscar Hernandez and Bobachet have both struggled. Two for 12 against him. Uh, no Blue Jay has homered off Drew Rasmussen, which is a really interesting one. A 187 batting average collectively, even though, again, they're putting the ball in play a ton against him. Uh, one thing to watch for with Rasmussen as we uh, take a look at the Blue Jays lineup in a minute here is that Rasmussen has reverse splits. So even though he's a righty, righties hit him better than lefties do. Um, the Jays do have the ability to put nine righties in the lineup. They're not going to do that. They're going to put seven righties in the lineup and two lefties. Here is how the Jays line up. George Springer in center field. Oh, sorry, rather. There are three lefties in the lineup tonight. I'm so used to only looking at the sixth spot down because no lefties ever hit high in the lineup. What a day. What a lineup we have. Uh, George Springer leads off and plays center field. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at DH. Bo Bichette. Matt Chapman. In the cleanup spot as Alejandro Kirk gets a day off. Kevin Biggio hitting fifth and playing first base. Danny Jansen up in the sixth spot. One of the hottest hitters on the Blue Jays over the last month. Uh, he'll catch Ross Stripling and hit sixth. Rymel Tapia in left. Santiago Espinal at second. Jackie Bradley Jr. in right. So your outfield, Tapia, Springer, Jackie Bradley Jr. You've got Zimmer and Merrifield uh, on the bench. A reminder that... 
Lourdes Gurriel Jr. is still on the IL. We're expecting an update on him at some point this week to for a timeline there. Um, Gabriel Moreno, we still haven't seen. He's available off the bench conceivably. Um, Alejandro Kirk also off the bench. And then Whit Merrifield, your extra guy there. Um, Whit Merrifield, who, of course, the, the guy we've all been super, super high on this whole time and came through with a big, big hit yesterday. So that's how the Jays will line up behind Ross Stripling. Stripling is facing this Tampa Bay team for the second time this year. Was one of his shakier starts. Back on July 3rd, he gave up four runs, three of them earned, over four and two-thirds. You have seven hits and a walk, only struck out three. Now, that's not great. And the overall sample that Ross Stripling has against this Tampa Bay team is pretty shaky. However, only 21 of those 111 plate appearances came this year. That's a lot of dated sample for a pitcher who has fundamentally improved this season. How much has Ross Stripling improved this season? Well, I pulled some data. And in terms of chase rate, so again, that's how often do guys swing at pitches outside of the zone? Because that's a, first of all, it's something you want to do as a pitcher. And it's a good proxy that we have for, um, you know, probably getting guys to give you weak contact. Ross Stripling has the fourth biggest improvement in chase rate of any pitcher in baseball. Now I cut this off at 50 innings each season. So your leaders in terms of who's improved the most getting swings outside of the zone, Dean Kramer in Baltimore, who's been again, one of the breakout stories this year, 334 ERA working in that rotation, Trevor Stefan in Cleveland. Um, he hasn't pitched quite as much, but he's become a pretty good bullpen arm, a long man for them. John Gray, who, I told you guys, I've been saying it since the start of winter. Uh, John Gray, big jump in in chase rate. And then it's Ross Stripling. Last year, Ross Stripling got swing and miss or swings on pitches outside of the zone 28% of the time when he threw a ball outside the zone. That's up to over 37% this year. That's a really good rate. That is in the 91st percentile. It's just a hair above Drew Rasmussen, actually. Rasmussen, by the way, 10th on that list of guys who have improved their chase rate. Uh, Kevin Gosman and Dylan Bundy, two other interesting names on that list, as well as uh, Edwin Diaz, old Timmy Trumpet getting the uh, getting the chase stuff. So Gosman's on there, not entirely surprising given how it's felt with his performance this year. Um, Dylan Bundy and John Gray, the two guys all my friends make fun of me for never giving up on. Uh, and then Drew Rasmussen and Ross Stripling, tonight's two starters. So uh, that's a pretty good way to look at who has improved a lot this year and Ross Stripling's right near the top of it. Not surprisingly, the other part of Ross Stripling's improvement, he has only walked 3.3% of batters this year as a starting pitcher. His overall walk rates a little higher than that. Um, but since he moved into the rotation, just 3.3% walk rate, he has a 303 ERA on the season drops a 291 as a starter. Um, as a starter, his strikeout rate that is down a little bit as you'd expect uh, the ground ball rates down a bit. And then again, the not walking anyone goes a long way. Um, by the way, in terms of Ross Stripling's workload and in terms of the idea that he can't go a third time through the order, or maybe he's only a five and dive guy, etc. He's 45th in the American league in innings pitched. There are 15 teams in the American league. 
do the math there. He's had a number three, a low number three slash high number four pitchers workload on the season. He's only nine innings off his career high. Um, we're past the point, I think, of worrying about Ross Stripling, the length he's going to give you. Um, he's almost a, a lock for five plus. And I, I think you can hope for, you know, it wasn't that long ago you were hoping, well, if Stripling can give you four clean, maybe you let him go a fifth. And then it was, well, maybe he can give you five and dive. I, I think you're hoping for six at this point for Moss Stripling. Your bullpen is in pretty good shape, if not. So you're looking good there. Again, Ross Stripling, the big pitch is the changeup. Those are about 27% of the time. It's one of the best changeups in baseball. Opponents hitting just 192 against it and swinging and missing 33% of the time. Uh, that allows a fairly pedestrian fastball to play okay. He'll throw that fastball about 92, throws it 35% of the time. Uh, opponents hitting 227 against it, but with a little bit more power, uh, a little bit more authority. He'll also throw a slider that's pretty effective. It doesn't get very much swing and miss by the standards of a slider, uh, but really weak contact uh, with that contact given up. So against righties, Stripling's going to go slider, fastball, changeup, sinker, curveball. That curveball has been hit pretty hard, and sometimes he'll go away from it. And the sinker, I think, is mostly just to help set up the changeup against right-handed hitters. Um, you know, we hear a lot about not using the changeup against hitters from the same side, uh, but you can do that if you have a sinker that you can play off of it a little bit. Against lefties, he's going to go fastball first and then changeup, curveball, not many sliders, and he gets rid of the sinker almost entirely. Um, so looking at how the Rays have played against him, David Peralta's 10 for 24 against them. Uh, G-Man Choi has walked five times against them. The big one, though, Manuel Margot, 8 for 21 with three home runs. Yikes. Uh, Yandy Diaz, Wander Franco, Taylor Wells, all small samples of poor performance against Ross Stripling. Here's how the Rays are going to line up to try to get to him. Yandy Diaz will lead off. Wander Franco gets a DH day. Randy Rosarena, Harold Ramirez, G-Man Choi, Manuel Margot, Christian Betancourt, Isak Paredes, and Taylor Walls. So all those names we just talked about. You've got your Peralta, Margot. Oh, no, no Peralta, despite the heavy career numbers against Ross Stripling. No Peralta in the lineup as he gets an off day. But you do have Margot and Choi in there at 5-6, the two guys that have uh, the best career results against him. And then you've got... Yandy Diaz, Wander Franco, and Taylor Walls at one two nine, who have not had much success against Russ Stripling. But again, a lot of this is a somewhat dated sample. It was one start earlier in the year, and then a lot of earlier versions of Russ Stripling. So interesting, at least, but don't know that the current version of Russ Stripling cares much about what last year's version of Ross Stripling did. I uh, mentioned it earlier. The Rays returned Yoni Chirinos to the minors. He was the 29th man yesterday. Uh, they made another move as well. Uh, they recalled Rene Pinto as an extra catcher, moved Brandon Lau to the IL. Um, the expectation is that Shane McClanahan will be activated from the IL to start for them tomorrow. That'd be a heck of a matchup. Kevin Gosman against Shane McClanahan. Uh, two guys in the Cy Young conversation, it's probably more of a Dylan Cease, Justin Verlander conversation, but Gosman, Manoa, McClanahan, those guys aren't too, too far off uh, once you get a little further down the ballot. Oh, 
Shane McClanahan against Kevin Gosman. Mm, boy, that's uh, I love when the pitching matchups in a series line up in a way that's like, um, like you intentionally chose the matchups like Drew Rasmussen and Ross Stripling. Okay. That's two of the most improved starters, two guys who went from fringy swingman types to very good mid rotation starters. And then you get Gosman McClanahan, which is two guys who arguably could be in the Cy Young conversation. You didn't get that the whole series, but I do like that two of them line up that way. Should be a good couple games coming off of uh, the last few here. If we look at the Rays bullpen and the shape it's in, they're not in terrible shape, mostly because they just keep sending guys to the minors and getting fresh ones up. They have technically 11 guys in the bullpen right now. Um, So even though they used six yesterday, they should have some freshness there. Uh, Ryan Yarbrough hasn't pitched in a little bit. Josh Fleming's just up from the minors. Uh, Javi Guerra pitched on Monday, but not yesterday. Same goes for JT Chargois and Jason Adam, who, of course, uh, not happy with himself for that final pitch to Bo Bichette in the eighth inning of Monday's game. Uh, so you're probably not seeing Pete Fairbanks. You're definitely not seeing Sean Armstrong after he threw 48 pitches yesterday, but uh, the Rays have some options there. We spoke to Shai Davidi a little earlier, and he mentioned that, yeah, the Jays bullpen, not in bad shape, considering what the schedule has looked like. Bullpen day on Sunday. Bullpen day for one half of Tuesday's doubleheader. They're hanging in there. They haven't had to overuse guys. Um, Jordan Romano pitched yesterday, but only needed him for a couple pitches. You've got Yusei Kikuchi available if you need some length. They'll be careful, surely. Um, We'll see if they look at making any roster moves later in the week for fresh arms. But I I don't know. If you got through Sunday and you got through yesterday... Maybe you don't need it. How today and tomorrow go probably determine that because you've got another potential bullpen day on Friday. And if someone has to hit the IL or get option down to get a fresh arm in there so you don't punt a game against Baltimore to start that series, uh, you do what you have to do. The big question will be, is this weekend the weekend you can put Baltimore out of their wildcard race misery altogether? The Jays right now are five and a half up on Baltimore. Seattle and Tampa are five up on Baltimore. If you take all three from Baltimore this weekend, this conversation's done. Uh, you're no longer even looking at them, updating them really. You'd be down to uh, 15 or fewer games left and a lot, a lot, a lot of room to make up. We're going to talk to Michael Bowman on the other side. Uh, he's new at Fangraphs, but you surely know him. He's been all over the ringer, Grantland, Baseball Prospectus, D1, Um He's started his Fangraphs tenure at House of Fire. We're going to see what he thinks of the American League playoff race of these three wildcard teams in particular. Also going to talk to our pal Samson Folk a little later. You might know him as a Raptors guy, but he's a pretty big baseball fan too. And I took him to his first Jays game. 
the other day. I want to get some of his impressions. I, I mostly want to talk as well about how, and, and we've done this in the past. We've done this with Brittany Donaldson, the former Raptors uh, assistant coach. Um, we've done this with a couple other people too, about coming to baseball from a different sport and what sort of stands out to you, what from an analytic perspective or an observation perspective or a narrative perspective um, strikes you. Those conversations are fun. They can they can help us zoom out of the uh, the narrow baseball box a little bit. Um, talk to guys like Tass Mellis or, or Brittany Donaldson, like I mentioned. Um, so we'll talk to Samson a little later as well. We'll see if it works out with Trisha Whitaker. Um, we may not be able to to get her any longer, um, but we'll see how that goes. Hopefully, you feel pretty well informed at this point about Drew Rasmussen against Ross Stripling. We'll also take your text throughout the show. You can text us at 590-590. Just get a word from producer JR that uh, we will not have Trisha Whitaker on the show. Um, that one didn't work out. I guess the Rays were a little delayed getting to Rogers Center. Um, Toronto traffic. Who knew? Who knew? Uh, at least they're not trying to take the TTC on the day of <laughs> the Queen's funeral. Because, uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm going to take a break. When we come back. We'll talk to Michael Bowman of Fangraphs. We'll talk to Samson Folk. We will take your texts to 590-590. Let me know. How are you feeling about this team heading into the rest of the series and the stretch run here? Also, hey, let's zoom ahead. What if the first week of October, you're looking at a Friday, Saturday, Sunday series with Drew Rasmussen against Ross Stripling in one game, Kevin Gosman against Shane McClanahan in another game, and Alec Manoa against the Rays would start someone. Maybe it's Corey Kluber. Maybe it's Jeffrey Springs. But you know the Rays would just throw seven guys out there if they needed to in a game three like that. How would you feel? You've got a good look at the Rays now. Three games in a row, two more to come. Uh, You've gotten a look at them. How do you feel about a potential Rays series? Uh, I have a feeling you would feel better about it at Rogers Center than you would at the Trop. Even though the Jays' bats haven't been super hot at home, uh, we know what the trap's like. Let's take a break. Michael Bowman of Fangraphs on the other side on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Everything you need to know about the Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, joining us now from Fangraphs, someone I've admired the work of for a very long time, Michael Bauman. How are you, man? I'm good. How are you? I am excellent. Uh, Got to ask you, though, I know you had to put it in like the second paragraph of your, hey, I'm at Fangraphs now piece. How tired and how quickly did it get tired when people would make the Michael Bauman of the Orioles jokes? Um, it's, you know, it hasn't been as, as weird as I thought. I've actually talked to him a few times, interviewed him because we wanted to make, uh, that joke ourselves. And he's a nice kid and, you know, it seems like he's doing okay. So, you know, there's a lot of pressure on him. As long as he doesn't embarrass me, I'm good with it. <laughs> uh, that's great. I, I, I have of course looked myself up on fan before and you can like this, this came about trying to look at my old articles archives there or whatever and and there was like at some point a bad minor league catcher named Blake Murphy not as cool as having a current major league pitcher with your name um so you are fangraphs now I've read your stuff at at baseball perspective at the ringer 
at Grantland over the years. Uh, tell me about the move to Fangraphs and what you're excited about with the new home. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, I've been friends with, you know, the, some of the people who've been, who uh, work there, Meg Rowley, Jay Jaffe, Eric Long and Hagen for a very long time. Um, they're all really smart people. Uh, you know, I wanted to, to work with this group of people and, you know, I've, I've been moving away from baseball at the ringer for a little while, you know, covering other things and that's great. But like, I want to get back to focusing on, on baseball, which was my bread and butter for most of my career. So, you know, I'm excited, you know, we're going to be doing a lot of fun things, looking forward to the playoffs. Um, so, you know, it's, it's getting back into it. It's, uh, it's, it's been fun so far. I hope it continues to be yeah, fun. Yeah, well, hit the ground running, man. That's a lot of articles uh, right quick. And I know that something you kind of touched on in your introductory piece and, and something I feel passionately about and, and something I've appreciated in your work over the years is, you know, this idea that analytics as a catch-all is, first of all, very reductive and, and usually inaccurate um when it comes to kind of furthering the conversation we're obviously well well past the point of like you know 2010 to 15 blog era where you you almost have to dunk on people to try to push the conversation along um to now where it's more about making that stuff accessible and blending it into storytelling more naturally um how do you how do you approach things like that and i know fan graphs you can assume kind of uh you know, the type of person who logs onto that website is understanding and looking for that kind of analysis. But we as a whole, as a baseball media, in terms of making that stuff uh, accessible, how do you approach that? I think making it accessible, like you said, that's the entire battle right now. And it's not even making it accessible in terms of explain, because a lot of the stuff that we measure in baseball, that what we think of as, as analytics is, is really intuitive and it's stuff that we've been talking about and thinking about whether it's exit velocity or catcher framing or, you know, we've been thinking about this for a hundred years and we've been articulating it in a certain way. We just have a number for it now. And that's, that's what's changed in the past uh, five to 10 years. And, you know, I think that that's something that, that a lot of sites, including Fangrass have put a lot of effort into. It's something I put a lot of effort into as a writer of my various stops is trying to, be empirically sound to take as, you know, to use these tools for what they are, for what they give you, but also to understand their limitations and to try to try to spell it out in a way that's accessible and interesting for the reader. So I think, you know, one of the things that, that I found, you know, as somebody who lives through that era you were talking about and, uh, you know, had to do a lot of explaining of, you know, what war is or what win probability added is, um, you look at the numbers and, Often is not like now that we're more comfortable with this stuff. I find that I find they just raise more questions, and it makes me want to, you know, find out you know why this player's numbers are the way they are, or you know what's happening with this player. And so, you know, as somebody who's been lucky enough to, um, you know, to have some clubhouse access throughout the years, like you know, that's what I've I've enjoyed talking to players about. It's given me an an in with, uh, you know, to start a conversation with players about. You know, I see your you know, asking a pitcher, you're going to your slider more. Why is that? You know, it has more break. What have you changed mechanically? And and ask those why and how or questions that I think make the most interesting, um, you know, sp stories throughout sports. And it, this is something that you'll find through from uh, good writers, no matter what, you know, no matter what sport they're covering, they can look at the data 
and find a way to to get answers on why and how. And that's where I think the the best stories come from. I also think it's, you know, that's a helpful way to approach it and a helpful way to extend it out to fans because I'd imagine the, you know, the we're we're past the era too of one of the things I heard, and this was more on the basketball and hockey side than baseball side, just where my career's been. Um, but one of the things you heard back in that era we mentioned uh, of maybe 10 years or so ago, at the team level and the organization level, it wasn't a you know front office top-down inability to understand or appreciate those things. It was a communication issue. And now I think we're at the yeah. point, like not everyone has to be Kyle Body over at, at driveline and understand the Rapsodo measurements and the Edgetronic cameras and all that stuff. But most of the players that I've talked to, and that's, you know, this is my first year back on baseball. So that's a fairly limited sample on the baseball side, but certainly on the basketball side, most players, once you explain to them how this stuff is going to make them better. And, and you know, the, the follow-up of that is it's going to make you more money. Um, then yeah, it's a little bit uh, easier to, to kind of convince people. So I think that's great on the fan side as well, that the fan that wants to be a little smarter, understand what the players are going through. Obviously there is going to be the occasional contentious thing like Michael all of these rule changes that you love so much and that some people do not, including other people at Fangraphs, David Lorela, not as big a fan of them as you. Um, give me the high level. Uh, why are you excited about the, the rule changes to come, whether it's um, the, the limiting on where a defense can line up, the pitch clock, the bases being the size of Jose Altuve, whatever you got. Yeah, I think, well, Let's start with the the pitch clock because that's going to be the the biggest thing. The size of the bases, I think we'll see a minor uh, decrease in injuries, but it will be imperceptible. Um, you know, I think it's something that's going to make the sport a little safer and doesn't cost us anything competitively. And banning the shift, I think a lot of people have been calling for that, including me, for for a long time because the reaction. Uh, to the shift, you know, we haven't seen guys going the other way. It's still the most efficient way if you're a left-handed power hitter, if you're an Otani or a Joey Gallo or somebody like that, is to just try to beat the ball through the shift. And, you know, the the reaction just hasn't come. And at this point, I'm, I'm not sure it ever will. But that said, if you look at the minor league data, take that for what it will, for what you will, it, I don't know that we're going to see a huge aggregate effect on the number of balls going through. I think it'll change which balls go through, but maybe the, the number will stay about the same. But the pitch clock is going to be the most revolutionary thing to happen to baseball since the designated hit. Right? Of this, I am almost certain because it impacts so many aspects of the game. The biggest one, the most important for me is the spectator element where if you watch a baseball game and you're just watching the game, you're not like out enjoying the sun or you don't have Twitter open or something. You notice the difference between 20 seconds between pitches and 27 seconds between pitches, for instance. Those extra few seconds in between pitches just suck so much of the life and attention of the game. And that's, you know, it's it's why baseball drags. And, you know, length of game is important, yes, I think, but it's not as important. You, know, you look at, at something like soccer or Formula One that's, that's starting to uh, kick off in North America in the, the past 10 years or so, a lot of people talk about how short the event is and how you know it's going to take a certain amount of time and you can just block that off. Honestly, I think the fact that those sports are televised without commercials, that there's just action throughout the entire, you know, there are lulls in, in play, there are stoppages, but 
something is going on all the time. And baseball has never been like that, but it's never dragged the way it has. And, you know, I mentioned this in, in the piece, just the, the, the degree to which pitchers, particularly relief pitchers, have gotten slower over the past five years is just mind-boggling. And if, you know, we baseball people are really pretentious about, oh, we don't have a clock, they would have, they would have built in a clock if they knew that this was going to happen. You know, baseball games used to take two hours, and they don't anymore, and maybe they shouldn't, but we shouldn't have to wait 30 seconds between pitches, and it just sucks all the air and the tensions out of it. I think it'll be revolutionary overnight uh, for the sport once once we come back next year. And then there, there are side effects. The, the, the limitations on uh, holding the ball or stepping off, uh, the limitations on pickoff throws, uh, they increased base stealing by something like 10 percentage points in the minor leagues or the base stealing, um, base stealing efficiency, I should say. And I think it was up to, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I think it was 27% more attempts. That's huge. And then you like pickoff throws suck. Nobody likes pickoff throws. Everybody likes stolen bases. Let's get less of one and more of the other. And the other thing is this has been postulated, and I don't know how big an effect it's going to have, but a lot of the grip it and rip it relievers, the, guy who, the guys who just max effort 98 miles an hour with a big slider, they take a lot of time between pitches because it's hard work to do that. You need time to rest. And if you only give them 15 seconds between pitches instead of 30, they're not going to be able to throw as hard all the time. It'll make the ball – this is the theory at least – It'll make the ball easier to hit. We'll see more contact. We'll see more balls in play and fewer strikeouts. And so, like, that's the the shoot the moon thing. Um, that could be, like, if that happens, it could solve so many problems. It could be the, the biggest thing since, you know, honestly, the shot clock. Like, the shot clock in basketball is one of the simplest, greatest inventions in the history of sports. And I think the pitch clock could be similar for baseball, even if even if all of these you know, sort of pie in the sky things don't pan out. If it's enforced, it could just completely change the way we, we perceive the game. I'm with you on the pitch clock for sure. And I think baseball is such a great game already that you don't need to do something that overhauls it to, to change anything. It's just a little thing here and there uh, to sharpen things up. And, you know, there'll be trickle down effects. And then we get a whole new year of, you know, analyzing the next thing. What has uh-huh. the effect actually been? What are we seeing teams change strategically? Um, you know, it, it's funny. I, I hear fans sometimes lament the the lack of stolen bases or aggressive base running in the current game and, and yet resistant to some of these changes. It's like, yeah, that's what it's designed to do. They're not trying to make the game more boring for you, the fan, for sure. Um, so I, I'm with you. And I also appreciate, Michael, that you got ahead of things and wrote the is Kenley Jansen done piece now (laughs) instead of next year when he's absolutely done because I don't know that there's been a slower moving pitcher uh, the last decade or so. Yeah, you could, you, you, you definitely likes to hold the ball a little bit, but to, but to your point about revolutionizing the game, like this is, this is something that I think we don't impress enough when it comes to the pitch clock. Yes, it feels like a revolutionary thing, but all it's doing is just, instructing the players and umpires to, you know, to stop messing around and just play the game. Like if you were playing pickup basketball or if you were playing, you know, playing video games or something like there are different, there are ways that you can sort of find loopholes and find (laughs) edges. And, but the guy who figures that out and does it is the most annoying person. He doesn't get invited back to the, you know, to the next game. And 
we've just, you know, we've got a league full of the most annoying person in your, <laughs> your golden eye four player thing, you know? Uh, and so all this is doing is just getting everybody fo- refocused on, you know, throw the ball, hit the ball, catch the ball, and then repeat and, you know, just keep, keep things moving. It, you know, it shouldn't have had to come to this, but now that it has, it would be foolish not to, uh, not to recognize it and, and tweak the rules to try to make the game more entertaining. I love the idea, too, that this pitch clock will be in the future video games and you'll have like a set of brothers oh, and yeah. one, one will pause it to go get a drink or something like that. And the other one will unpause it, be like, no, there's a pitch clock in this game, too. You know, you want to go get that drink. You want to go get a snack. You're you're eating the uh, you're eating the the cost of it. Um, Michael, I do want to ask you a little bit of uh, Jay centric stuff here. And I know you tweeted sure. about Bo Bichette the other day and, and how you can't have that much juice south of the border. Um, this recent stretch, it's been a pretty hot 23, 25 games or so. Uh, he was having a bit of a shaky year offensively. Has this stretch changed your opinion of him at all, or just kind of reaffirmed what you already thought of him heading into this year? I think reaffirmed is more like it. You know, he's a young player who swings a lot. And this is one of the reasons I've been a huge Boba Shep fan since, since his rookie year. I just like the way he plays and I like how proactive he is at the plate and guys like that are going to be streaky. And, you know, it's just the nature of the game. You know, sometimes things are falling in. Sometimes, you know, you just go through streaks where you're, you're seeing the ball better. And, and, uh, Bichette's going through that right now. Um, I, you know, I've always thought he was, uh, maybe not a future MVP type, but sort of the next level down below that, you know, like a, a multiple time all-star, maybe a future batting champion. Um, and he's just the hottest thing on the planet right now. Um, it's it, so, you know, it's good to see, see him sort of find his way after a, a rough start to the season. On the other side of that, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. continues to struggle. Uh, I'm sure you guys at, at Fangraphs have, or will write about it. You know, the ground ball rates through the roof. It's, a month of Vlad being just a league average hitter by something like weighted runs created plus, but Vlad being only an average hitter for a month seems like a huge aberration. Uh, are you seeing anything with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at the plate or within the numbers that worries you? Not long term, but you know we're we're a couple weeks away from the playoffs here. We're running out of mm-hmm. time to uh, to to resolve this kind of thing. Well, the fact that that he has such high standards to, you know, the, the work comparing to last year where in any normal season, he would have won the MVP, if not for, for Shohei Otani, like he's got a long way to fall and he can still be productive, but you know, this was a problem early in his career. And so, you know, he's established himself to the point where I'm not going to get worried by a month, you know, but it's something that, and uh, you know, I'll be honest, I haven't looked at, you know, his mechanics or his numbers enough to, to identify anything specific, but I'm sure if it's there, the Jays will try to find it before the the playoffs. But even if he's he's only a league average hitter, I think this lineup, it gets so much production from so many places that, uh, that they can live with him slumping a little bit because, you know, for instance, they have three catchers who can hit and most major league teams don't have one. Um, So that, that makes up for a lot of problems. Yeah, it does. And, you know, you can take it either way when it's, 
you know, when the lineup's deep enough that a couple guys can slump and, and you're still cruising or one guy gets hot and, and he carries the offense for a little bit, you know, I know at the, the fan level day to day, that could be pretty frustrating. Why don't these guys ever get hot at the same time? Or, you know, in, in this case, this Jay's recent, uh, hot stretch has been really pitching fueled. The offense hasn't even been that great. Um, but for you, that does that speak to just it being like, I don't want to answer for you, but to me, what it suggests is, well, the floor is pretty high. And when you have 10 of your top 11 guys by plate appearances being league average or better on the season, um, you're a little insulated from those ups and downs. I, I guess, Michael, what I, what I would like to know is, um, do you think that that is a better thing or a worse thing than maybe a more top heavy offense that, you know, you're, you know what you're getting from Aaron judge every game uh, in a shorter playoff series. In a short playoff series. I mean, I think as long as you have that star potential, and I think with Bichette and Guerrero and George Springer, like the Jays have plenty of guys who can, who can catch fire for five games and carry a team, you know, the toughest this is not going to be a very popular metaphor, but so I, I apologize in advance, but the toughest offensive team I've ever seen in a playoff situation is the 2017 Astros who had, you know, a lot of other things going for them that presumably the Jays don't, but why they were so good is they were so good top to bottom. Nobody struck out. Everybody hit the ball hard. And even though that was El Chuve's MVP year and they had like, and they had Springer and Carlos Gray and other guys who could get hot and carry a team. That's not, it wasn't about one guy carrying a team, you know, that you can't do that in baseball. You're certainly, well, you can do it, but you can't count on it. Whereas if everybody is just taking good at bats, moving, you know, moving the line along, having seen lots of pitches, like that's so much harder and it's so much more, it's so much more dependable, I think is the way I'd put it. And so, you know, you said high floor. I think that's exactly right. And that doesn't preclude the Jays from having a high ceiling because they do have a lot of talented players. They just have, they have enough of them that they're not going to have to worry about, you know, Bryce Harper going cold at the wrong time uh, to, or, um, or Jose Ramirez or, you know, or Aaron judge, for instance, you know, where would the, the Yankees be if Aaron judge wasn't having one of the best offensive seasons of the past 20 years. And so that's a, you know, I, I think the, the fact that they have enough players to cover for Vladimir Guerrero when he's going through a little bit of a rough patch, that's fine. And you know, that it's a good thing. And who, you know, who's to say they can't all get hot at the right time? Well, I would love for them to get hot in just a couple weeks here because I'd like to be doing this show into November. Um, on mm-hmm. the other side, the Jays obviously armed with a couple very good starters. Uh, we saw Alec Manoa got one out yesterday for six and two thirds. Kevin Gosman will start tomorrow. We think against Shane McClanahan in a nice little ace battle. Uh, Ross Stripling, one of the most improved pitchers in baseball this year. Uh, when you look at the American League Cy Young race. I know we had all presumed that it would be Justin Verlander's because he has a 184 ERA at this age. Um, he's missed enough time now that maybe Dylan Cease can sneak in the conversation. His ERA is not far off, and he's got the strikeouts in his favor. Um, do Gosman or Manoa get in the conversation for you anywhere on a let's say the AL Cy Young ballot was was five deep? Do either of those guys mix in for you? Honestly, I'm. It, it's so even now that not not just um, Furlander, but even McClanahan losing time mm-hmm. um, that that makes this this race so wide open. I think you could make a credible argument for as many as ten different pitchers, and 
And, you know, Manoa and, and Gossman are definitely, they would definitely both show up on a 10-person list uh, of mine. Um, but, you know, you mentioned those guys. You know, Cease is probably, you know, gun to my head is probably the front runner right now. I, th- I think Farmer Valdez uh, is going to deserve a lot of consideration. And you look at, you know, a lot of the rate stats, like, as wild as it sounds, you know, I think there's an um an outside case to be made for Shohei Otani too. And so just because it's so wide open, I think anybody could come out of that. And it could be one of those things that, you know, uh, one guy or, you know, Shane Bieber, who I don't think I've mentioned, has has been red hot recently. Um, He strings together four really good starts in the season and that's it. And, you know, but barring that, uh, you know, this is one of the more wide open award races I can remember. You mentioned Bieber, uh, another Cleveland Guardian starter, not in the Cy Young conversation, but I'll mention it because you wrote a great piece about him and because it's a little bit of Canadian content. Uh, Cal Quantrill mm. there as well. Mm. Um, you know, the combination of Bieber, Quantrill, obviously Tristan McKenzie's there as well. We just talked about Gosman, Manoa, Stripling, Tampa Bay, Seattle. Let's assume the wild card, the three teams in whatever order stay the way they are right now, Tampa Bay, Seattle, Toronto, and let's say Cleveland wins the AL central. Um, How do you grade out that group of wildcard series teams? Is there one you think is notably better than the others or, or notably worse off? They all seem to have at least a good top two for a best of three playoff series as well. Uh, What do you make of what should be a, a really, really entertaining wildcard weekend for the American league? Yeah, I think what's what's going to make this fun is actually uh, a big reason why the Jays need to stay ahead um, is because a lot of the, you know, the three wildcard um, teams are all, they all have great playoff atmosphere. And, you know, you don't think of Tampa Bay as a, a place where you get like the rollicking crowd, you know, the, the sellouts like we've seen in Toronto, the people in, in Seattle, if they get home playoff games, you know, they haven't had that since 2001. They're going to go nuts. Um, but Tampa Bay even is a, is a tough place to play. Um, and so I think it's important for the Blue Jays to stay ahead. You know, it's, it's half a game right now as I'm looking at the the standings, but they don't want to go on the road. Um, and I think that, you know, I don't know how well their, um, their top two matches up with, with say Cleveland as much as I like Manila and Gosman. Um, I think they have the, the deepest lineup out of any of those contenders, but it's still close enough that something like home field advantage could end up making the difference. All right, uh, last one for you before I let you go here, Michael. Um, you've been doing kind of the Aaron Judge watch, as everyone has. September 26th, the Yankees start a series here. Am I getting to see home run number 62, or is he going to get there before then? So my colleague Ben Clemens has actually been doing a, a series predicting when it's going to happen. I think he said that's that was the most likely thing, although I haven't looked in the uh, I don't think he's updated in, the, in, a, yeah, in a couple days. That so. was before the two home run day yesterday. Before the two, home, it should have been a three home run day. <laughs> but the Red Sox, the cowards, walking in a judge in extra innings. Um, you know, it might not last that long, but I think it's entirely possible he does it in in Toronto. You know, and how much sixty two matter? You know, I, I think it matters a different amount to different people. But it would be cool to see no matter what, because it's been, you know. Certainly outside the steroid era, it's been forever since we've seen a, a 60 homer season. So that's, and particularly in an environment where home runs are down in general, I, you know, it makes it all the more impressive what Judge is doing. So I, I, I guarantee you will see at least one home run. I can't, you know, 
I'm less sure of which number it's going to be. I know starting next year, or I mean, we've been trending this way, but there's lesser and lesser of a divide between what is the American League and what is the National League. We're going to have a balanced schedule. Everyone uses the H. I still think the easy way around putting the steroid kind of cloud around the home run chases. If we just start referring to it as the American league record, that tidies everything up for us. I don't know why all the steroid guys were in the NL, uh, at least the ones who were very successful with it. Uh, Michael Bowman of fan graphs. Thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time out, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Michael Bowman of fan graphs. Check out all his great work over there. Our army of friends at fan graphs here on Jay's Talk Plus. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll, uh, we'll reset. We'll, we'll tee up tonight's game, Stripling Rasmussen. We went deep on the matchups uh, a little earlier, but we'll refresh you on the lineups in that pitching matchup. We'll talk to our pal Samson Folk, who took in his first ever Jays game the other day, uh, all the way from Saskatchewan. And we'll answer some of your texts in the text line at 590-590. All that's next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Great daily gambling advice from J.D., Blake, and Ailish in the Fan Morning Show's Wake and Rake. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jay's have taken two of three so far against the Rays. Split a doubleheader yesterday. Big, big win in the second half. Big comeback win in the first game of the series on Monday. They got two left. Tonight at 7.07, tomorrow at 3.07. Ben Wagner and Caleb Joseph on the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Quick refresh of the lineups for tonight. Jays will start Ross Stripling behind him. They'll go George Springer, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Bichette, Matt Chapman, Kevin Vigio at first base as Vlad gets a DH day. Yes, that was Chapman in the cleanup spot with Kirk getting his uh, first off day since 10 games ago. Danny Jansen hits sixth. Rymel Tapia, Santiago Espinal, Jackie Bradley Jr. rounded out. Uh, so your outfields, Tapia, Springer, Bradley. Espinal gets a second base nod. Vigio at first. So uh, Whitmerfield, Bradley Zimmer, Two catchers in Alejandro Kirk and Gabriel Moreno and Whit Merrifield uh, on your bench. On the Tampa Bay side, it's Yandy Diaz, Wander Franco, Randy Rosarena, Harold Ramirez, G-Man Choi, Manuel Margot, Christian Betancourt, Isak Paredes, Taylor Walls. And that's the group that'll be behind Drew Rasmussen, one of the only guys that has as much of a claim to if baseball had a most improved player award, It'd be him and Stripling, probably at the top of the conversation on the pitching side. Uh, what does have a most improved player award is basketball. Let's get a little basketball perspective on the Blue Jays. Let's talk to Raptors Republic's Samson Folk, who is I here. I want to talk to Samson. <laughs> who is uh, here from Saskatchewan and got to take in his first ever Blue Jays game uh, on Monday night. Samson, I know, first of all, hello, welcome. How are you? Um, yeah, I'm doing good. Just kicking around, you know? Yeah. Um, so you are a big baseball fan, but this was your first game on Monday. You got just about a perfect one with the Bobashek go-ahead home run in, in the eighth and a, and a close win. Um, what were your impressions? Your your first first time, long time at uh, at a Jays game? It was, it was pretty cool, and I'm maybe not the best person as far as frame of reference because I only understand sporting events professionally 
through a basketball lens, going to games as a fan and then working some as media. And so I don't have any other ballparks outside of some smaller ones in Mexico to compare Rogers Center to. But it was pretty great. You know, we had good seats and we saw, checked out the flight deck as well. And, you know, I had a foot long hot dog, did all the classic like baseball stuff. And uh, the game was really great. So, yeah, it was an awesome experience. I like that you set that up as like, oh, yeah, I, I'm i not a baseball person. I have a basketball background. I've only gone to a bunch of small diamonds watching Mexican professional baseball, uh, you know, real heads only down there. Um, <laughs> so, Samson, I'm curious. So, obviously, you know, your, your gig is Raptors stuff. You come at the Raptors from a very um, – analytical perspective not not just in terms of numbers but video and things like that um how do you how do you come to baseball do do you try to put some of that lens on baseball as well or or do you come in uh with a completely different perspective so i played a decent level of baseball until i was 15 and then quit for basketball so i understand the basics of baseball really well Although to analyze it the way that you do and the way that many people on Sportsnet do, I'm completely ill-equipped because I don't understand any of the numbers. I came to you know media and I started listening to everything, and then I started listening to more people who had the number stuff. And then you know maybe it's Joe Siddle, maybe it's like your your uh, segment with Chris Black, right, where you guys get into more fine-tuned stuff. And I learn a lot from that, especially the finer points, because while I can under, it seems like when I analyze basketball and like a set action or a set play, it seems like it's very discreet on a basketball court to notice things, but it seems far more discreet to pick up what's happening with a pitcher or a batter. And I think with it being a discreet sport in terms of it's one versus one all the time, you can glean more from numbers. So I just tried to lose the ego of like knowing, thinking I know baseball and just listen to people who watch the games and know the numbers really well, which happens to be uh, Blue Jays Talk Plus with Blake Murphy. <laughs> yes, this is why we brought Samson on, just to, to pump my tires and promote the show. Um, so I'm curious then, like, I, obviously that's a, it's a very humble way to, to frame that and approach it. But if that's the case, then I, I'm curious what stands out to you um, as you come to that and as you consume that stuff about baseball, whether it's, you know, something you didn't expect or, or something you're curious about, um, because I, I find personally, and, and this is something that, you know, I grew up playing hockey the way you played baseball and, you know, most of my career has been basketball, but through all of that, I, I've been a baseball guy and I find it really helpful to kind of, you know, switch off your basketball glasses and put baseball glasses on basketball or, or throw basketball glasses on hockey just to kind of zoom out a little bit. You know, one of my favorite things is talking to hockey people about power plays, but using NBA spacing concepts uh, to discuss, mm-hmm. you know, what a team's trying to do on, a, on the power play. So has anything like that stood out to you? Something that, that seems curious or, or kind of went aha for you in translating across the two sports? That's really tough because baseball isn't an invasion sport. So players very rarely interact with each other physically, like, you know, in football or basketball or soccer. It's just, it's not that common. Although the gap in my viewership in baseball, the thing that did change was the amount of innings that were thrown. Strikeout rates went way up. I basically stopped watching baseball around the same time that Alex Rios went to the Chicago White Sox. For anybody listening, I was a kid. And to see baseball the way it is now, it's certainly more 
even though it, it is like the peak analytical sport, it seems even more that way now. And it was very cool to learn about how swing path and stuff like that worked. And I suppose the comparison would maybe be if you do like the John Brinkus sports science, like a <laughs> Steph Curry releases the shot with the same power of a Mack truck, like something like that. I think that's the comparison is that the bat path and the discrete stuff of the swing can maybe be compared to, you know, a, a jumper. But although the jumper can change, I guess, according to if you want to consider a defender's hand coming to block the shot, maybe the pitch in that it can be different and it can disrupt how you might try to shoot. Um, the responses are different physically, but I guess that's probably the closest comparison. I th- I'm going to throw one other one at you as sort of uh you know, it's kind of, it's not a black box in basketball analytics right now. I know it's something that teams look at a little bit and I'm sure there are proprietary metrics out there, but um, one thing that we don't have a lot of granular information on is passing, right? It's just like, it's a pass Mm -hmm. and it's an assist, or maybe you can capture while that pass put a guy in a, a slightly more advantageous position than he was in before. Whereas in baseball, you can do so much with cameras in terms of um, the flight path of a ball, both out of the pitcher's hand and off the bat. I wonder if we can apply a little bit of that to, uh, you know, um, a more, qualitative appreciation of passes, but, but some numbers on that, obviously, but like distinguishing even like good pass, great pass in the pocket pass, pass with too much spin on it, that kind of stuff. Passing windows would probably be the coolest. Like Mm -hmm. what, what velocity, what angle, because the skip pass for LeBron James, because he's coming from such a high angle can have a much, it will have way less arc on it than Fred Van Vliet, for example. And there's been a bunch of advent like advantages for that for many larger creators in basketball. So I think that would be the coolest one to go from baseball to basketball is, you know, like passing windows, how tight they are, what the room for error was and, and all the things around that. So you coming to baseball and again, you grew up playing it and watching it, but it's only the last two or three seasons that you've really gotten back into it at a, you know, a day-to-day fan level, when you hear something like they're banning the shift, and that's a bit of an overstatement because they're just restricting defense to a certain degree in terms of, you know, two on each side a second and four on the on the dirt and things like that. Um, you know, basketball has gone through changes to what's allowed defensively as, you know, you have to counter modern spacing or, you know, you got to change the hand-checking rules or, or zone defense and things like that. Um, what stands out to you about the change to shifts, especially since you come at this as a Blue Jays fan and they shift more than any other team in baseball? So your your experience with, returning to baseball has been the most shift heavy an experience could possibly be. And now they're going to have to reimagine that a little bit. Um, What's your take on those changes and what would, you know, what stands out to you about it? So from that point of view, I think with the shift, we've talked about this before and there's kind of like a, you know, the batter get good is a response, like hit it where they aren't. I definitely think that's an intuitive response for most people, but Obviously, baseball is trying to liven the action, and it's leaning more into personalities now. And that's honestly, that's why I started watching the Blue Jays again was because Bo and Vladdy were such magnetic players that it kind of got me to buy in. And then you learn about all the other players. And baseball, I've heard many times the broadcast compared to like the original podcast because you have to talk about so much peripheral stuff in baseball because there's not as much action on the field. And so 
they have room to make the players' personalities bigger, to dig into it. And on the other side, they're trying to get more balls in play and stuff like that. And the shift, it, it, it's a ball in play technically still, but it's killing balls that may be otherwise. Because if the numbers are that the shift works, then that means that there's less grounders that reach the outfield. There's less opportunity for a guy to go first to third. There's less second home, stuff like that. So I think whatever does that, that's fine because I'm not a traditionalist because I'm like, well, whatever makes the game more fun and more exciting. So on the one hand, it's like, yeah, guys, you, you should be able to hit the ball where they aren't, but this also works. Yeah, it's also it's very very hard to hit it where they ain't. Um, you know, not not everyone is Charlie Kelly who, uh, after doing the bogs, can just rope one into left center. Some people. Oh, that reminds me. How'd you like Bull Durham, by the way? I only got halfway through it, dude. Uh, I was so tired, but that's baseball, baby. Yeah, yeah that is baseball, baby. Uh, Samson folk, one last one for you. Uh, Ross Stripling going tonight. I know you. You've texted me a couple times of late. A prediction for the pitcher's line, not from a, a betting perspective or anything. You just like throwing the prediction out there. Uh, what do you expect from your guy, Ross Stripling, tonight? So my Gossman one was way off. My Barrios it was one terrible, was yeah. Not so bad, yeah. Yeah, and Stripling, I, man, I really like watching Stripling, and I your interview with him was awesome, and hearing his perspective of, like, how to survive in the league and to change and to grow. It's That's a really cool aspect of baseball. The pitcher's... Just the mind games on the mound, I think, is awesome. And, like, just, you know, that aspect of going back to Major League was Eddie Harris, the pitcher. He's, like, putting sweat on the ball and just trying to spin his way out of situations. It's a it's a very cool position. And Ross is one of the coolest doing it because of that. And I think five and two-thirds, two runs, and somebody's coming in at the end of that to, to get him out of it, and it, it'll go fine. All right. Maybe, like, five strikeouts. There you go. Uh, I like it. Um, it would be an improvement on his last start against the Rays, uh, but enough certainly to to keep the Jays going here as they try to gain some edge on the Rays in the wild card race. Uh, Samson Folk of Raptors Republic, thanks so much for taking the time out, buddy. Yeah, thanks, man. I'll see you. Samson Folk of Raptors Republic, uh, nice to get an outside perspective on baseball at times. We're going to get an outside perspective outside of media because we're going to take it to the text line at 590-590 to round out our last 10 minutes here. Uh, we got a lot in there, so apologies if I don't get to it. Um, Riley in Edmonton throws out a, a potential batting lineup change. I can't answer these all the time because to go through all the specifics, um, it's a lot, and, and we get a lot of them. Basically, the idea is um, move Teoscar up higher, move Vladimir Guerrero Jr. down lower. I'd be fine with exploring moving Vlad down. I don't think you want to move Bo Bichette out of the three spot with how well he's hitting right now. Um, maybe you could go Vlad to the to the four hole where he hasn't really hit much this year. Um, I don't know. They're they're clearly committed to to Vlad in this spot because I think this is what they want their the top of their order to look like come playoff time. So you could do those tweaks, but I don't know that they're they're going to. Charles from Miramashi, New Brunswick. Uh, says he likes how the Jays outraise the Rays, emptying, emptying the bench against Poche for favorable matchups in the seventh. Yeah, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was great. You know, I, I admittedly was a tiny bit skeptical with the Whit Merrifield decision, just given how he's hit so far. You know, sub two hundred since since he became a Jay and things like that. Uh, but that's why you get a guy like that because he has more hits over the last five years or six years, whatever the number is, uh, than just about anyone in the American league. And 
you trust the veteran guy in a spot like that. And obviously, you know, baseball is baseball. You're going to have big hits sometimes. Even if you're, if you're hitting 200, that means one out of five times you're, you're getting a hit some quick math for you there. Um, JM Wasaga says he owes me a hot dog because, uh, I told him yesterday if the Jays hit the over on the, uh, on the hot dog line or the Jays fans hit the over on the hot dog line. I said, uh, I would get him a hot dog, but, uh, no worries about it. JM Wasaga. You don't, you don't have to get me a, a hot dog. It's fine. Um, Tyler in London says, why do you think wit isn't starting? Um, do you risk angering a player who you have for next year? and was a star in the league by not playing him after a huge hit. Uh, honestly, I don't think you worry about it that much. You're, you got acquired by a playoff team to play a smaller role on a good team than a larger role on a bad team. And I think most guys who are competitors, especially as they get a little later in their career, um, and Whit Merrifield, by the way, career royal before this year, but he missed that 2015 window. He didn't debut until 2016. So um, he hasn't gone through this really at, at that level most, I, I haven't gotten to know Whit Merrifield personally. Most guys, I think, at that stage in their career would tell you they'd rather play a small role in the playoffs than a large role and you're you're done in two weeks from now. Um, but that is a, a personal thing. Um, Alex in Toronto asks a follow-up, do I think Merrifield gets out of his slump after the double? I don't think it can hurt. Uh, if you were you know starting to lose confidence or anything like that, that's a nice piece of hitting uh, to shake you back into it. Um, also, just one follow to Tyler. He started a game yesterday, and, and this is, uh, you know, this is just the reality. They gotta, they gotta mix these things around to try to keep everyone involved a little bit. Um, you know, Merrifield has been on the wrong side of it more often than not. Um, only two starts over the last uh, six games, if you include today. Whereas Kevin Biggio has had four. Jackie Bradley Jr.'s had three. Rymel Tapia's had four. Um, some of that is also, you know, where the holes are. But yeah, I mean, I'd expect him to get more opportunity in the coming days as well as they continue to rotate guys around here with uh, 11 games in 10 days. Uh, Ken from Brampton says you need to finish either first or third. Second is not an option. Uh, you need home field advantage or play the AL Central team. Yeah, here's the problem with that, Ken from Brampton. You can't control all of that like if this is a like look at it right now they're half a game up on both of these two teams if there were a couple games left in the season you have no idea you can't pick second because you don't know what the other teams are going to do ahead of time and when we get down to those final days of the season uh baseball will choose to make sure you know things like that can't happen by having tampa bay seattle and, and toronto all start at the same time so yes i agree with you that the second wild card spot is the worst spot to land in but you can't, if you want to go for first, you can't avoid second then. And if you want to go for third, you probably got to wait just a little bit still um, to make sure you don't follow the playoffs entirely. And you just, I mean, there's the karmic element, but also you don't want your team playing less than their best baseball heading into the postseason. SJ in North York shouts out producer J.R. Manitad for his uh, Alejandro Kirk meme about catching the catching the go train yesterday. It was a good one. Uh, shout out to producer J.R. Manitad and Derek Brandeo back there. Hi, Derek. He's got a, a really good haircut this week. If any of you were wondering how, how Derek's looking back there. Um, Rick and Markham asks, do pitchers who plunk batters on a regular basis benefit from having that reputation? Um. So this is one I'd need a little more time with. I'd have to go through the numbers. But one thing I can tell you for sure is that the 
guys who hit the most batters tend to be the guys who work the inside part of the plate more. And the inside part of the plate can be dangerous. It's a good pull zone for a lot of guys. Look at Santiago Espinal and what he does at inside versus outside pitches, uh, for example. Um, You know, I'd have to look at this on a more macro basis to see if it holds league-wide. I would say in general, if you're someone who hits a lot of batters, that probably means you're comfortable operating on the inside part of the zone and you're only comfortable in operating on the inside part of the zone if you're good at pitching inside. So there's there's maybe a little chicken or the egg thing there where uh, you don't pitch inside aggressively enough to hit a lot of batters unless you're good at it. And yeah, anyway, um, I think there's a little chicken egg thing there. Um, Grishin in Toronto says... Manoa battled yesterday and Ross is going to war tonight. How do you feel about Ross's arsenal of weapons to conquer the Rays lineup? It's a lot of, uh, a lot of war speak for, uh, for a pitching matchup. I I think it's good. You know, he's struggled with this Rays team in the past for sure. Um, But that was a different version of Ross Stripling. I mentioned it earlier. I, I pulled some numbers earlier in taking a look at Ross Stripling, Andrew Rasmussen. And they're an, they're a really interesting head-to-head because they're two of the most improved pitchers in baseball this year. Two guys who were kind of fringy swingmen who are now bona fide middle rotation starters. And they're both among the top 10 in terms of getting more chase this year versus last. So um, how often did you get guys to swing at pitches outside of the zone? Ross Stripling fourth in terms of increase there. Drew Rasmussen 10th. They are both now getting guys to swing at pitches outside the zone about 37% of the time when they throw them. Stripling just a hair ahead of Rasmussen uh, in that regard. Rasmussen just a hair ahead with uh, slightly better numbers overall. Although the gap between you know strikeouts minus walks uh, at a percentage basis, they're almost dead even. In terms of wins above replacement, they're almost dead even. They're very good analogs for each other. Uh, I'm very... Very pleased that they lined up as a matchup. And then tomorrow, assuming all goes well with Tampa Bay, we will get to tee up Kevin Gosman against Shane McClanahan in a bit of an ace day. As a reminder, it is stripling against Rasmussen tonight. The Jays will give Alejandro Kirk his first day off in uh, in about 10 games. So Matt Chapman hits cleanup. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is in a DH, which means Kevin Biggio draws in at first. The lineup goes like this. Springer, Guerrero Jr., Bichette, Chapman, Biggio, Jansen, Tapia, Espinal, Bradley. They're behind Ross Stripling. They're up against Drew Rasmussen. Uh, the Rays will go with Yandy Diaz, Franco, Orozarena, Ramirez, Choi, Margot, Betancourt, Paredes, and Walls. Again, Rasmussen has faced the Jays three times this year. Pretty good results. Stripling has faced the Rays once. Not great results. I don't know that either of that is going to hold. Rasmussen's really good, so maybe it holds on that side, but Stripling's a much better pitcher now uh, than he was when he faced the Rays earlier in the year, and sometimes you're just going to have a... Sometimes you're just going to have a bad start. It happens. Uh, thanks for all the... Graham in Toronto says, who cares about what playoff position because the Jays are beasts on the road? Um, they are, but playing at home is good. Players would tell you they'd rather play at home. They have a better record at home than on the road, uh, and... Going into the trop is uh, is not great. Uh, KM in Norfolk asks if we're going to see Yoshi Sutsugo in Toronto. He's been awesome in Buffalo. I mean, maybe if they decide they want that look, uh, they'd have to clear a 40-man spot and probably send Gabriel Moreno down. But 
We'll see. Uh, Ian in Guelph says the prospect of playing at the Trop is terrifying. So uh, Ian in Guelph and Graham in Toronto, you guys can argue uh, about that. Thank you so much to Samson Folk for coming on, to Michael Bauman for coming on, to Shai Davidi for coming on, to JR and Derek behind the glass. Uh, we're going to hand it over to drive time momentarily here. Ben Wagner and Caleb Joseph back on the call for you. 707 first pitch on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Blair and Barker have you for Jay's Talk post game. And Jay's Talk Plus returns at 2 p.m. tomorrow, 2 to 3, because it's a 307 start tomorrow. So we'll be in the pregame slot tomorrow. I'm Blake Murphy. This has been Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590, the fan.